Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome back again. This is The Ruck. I'm Owen Slot, and as with all our podcasts in the last two months, I want to start by saying that we hope you're all as well as possible and handling these anxious lockdown times as best as you possibly can. We've got a different kind of package on the pod this week. No Jonesy, no Barnsy, no ranting or moaning, no team Zooming or Skyping. We've got two interviews right from the heart of the England team. Lawrence Delalio and I have each interviewed one of Eddie Jones's assistant coaches. Lawrence talked to his old WASS and England coach John Mitchell, who is now the England defence coach. And first you get me in conversation with Matt Proudfoot, the new England forwards coach. Matt, you're joining us from South Africa where your family live, correct? Correct. I'm in Cape Town at the moment. I got home just before the lockdown ensued to be in with my wife and my child in Cape Town, to be with the family during this process and this time. I thought it was imperative that I was here for them, so I, I took one of the last flights out. Good for you. Are you finding it uh, as frustrating as, as, as most people, just doing your best to get on with it, or, or do you have a, a splendid pad that looks out over the ocean and um, makes you feel quite happy with life? Well, I enjoy my home in, in, in Cape Town, Owen, but it... Um, so that this process has been, you need to be in your home. So you can only go to buy, out to buy food or see the medical services. So there hasn't been the opportunity to get out um, until the 1st of May. There's only an opportunity to do three hours of exercise between 6 and 9 in the morning. So it's still a very stringent lockdown in South Africa. Wow, three hours um, is a lot of exercise though, isn't it? Especially for me. <laughs> I, I hope I find you well and healthy and thanks for joining us. Matt, I wanted to um, rewind to, to sort of where you really came into our lives, if you like, speaking on behalf of uh, English rugby. Um, so you've been um, a coach with the Springboks from 2016, but we, we came face to face with you and, and your skills, if I can put it that way, in, in the World Cup final England, South Africa, which we all remember extremely well. I, I'd just like to ask you to... to reflect a little bit on that Springbok team. What was special about that group? What, what for you made that the best team in the World Cup? I think the humility that the, that the team had. They were playing for something bigger than themselves. 
Sears leadership really broke down, I would say, the old barriers in South Africa about uh, how a team functioned. Being so accessible to the youth, having such a innate quality about him as a leader, he brought the team to the people, to the common people. Um, and I think that the team as a whole took took that as a responsibility that they were playing for, for not just themselves, they were playing for their country and for their people. And so every action of theirs mattered. And, and, and what struck me was the humility of the players is that no matter what we asked as coaches or demanded from them is that they were prepared to do it. But I think it had something to do with that responsibility they felt. South Africa has really tough challenges as a country uh, and, and the players felt it and they wanted to try and do something to that. They wanted to be part of the solution for the country. So I think being part of that was just special. You know, from a personal perspective, I'd worked with uh, a vast number of those forwards for a long, long time. Mm. Having coached them through their Stormers days, I, I think I coached seven Super Rugby's with them. And a player like Stephen Kutsoff, I'd known him since he turned 18. He was brought straight into the Stormers setup from school days. You know, France, Mojave, Bongi, Manambi, um, Vincent Koch. I brought him into the Stormers before he went to Saracens. Eben Etzebeck, Peter Steftatoy, Sio Kalisi, Dwayne Vermeer and Francois Lowe. I'd all coached them at, at the Stormers, you know, so... Um, it was a very personal journey as a, as a pack of forwards that, that I knew them so well, you know, and to see them grow to where a point where I think 2017, you know, it was still pulling them along. And in 2018, they really started to fly and I could step back and, and just be a facilitator along the way with them, you know. So my next question, Matt, is, which I think is one of those fascinating things when you study the development of that World Cup winning side is, you were there from 2016. Now, in 2016 and 2017, they had two real stinkers. Uh, of, 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 of each year was was poor. No one at that point would have said this is future World Cup finalists. So, obviously, there was a change of, of, of head coach. But was it the tapping into the national socio-economic sort of situation that transformed them, or was it coming of age, or change, or, or was it all these things coming together at the same time? I'm not going to downplay. Uh, Rossi's role in, in that he's, an, he's a tremendous coach. Um, there were certain, uh, you know, restrictions on, on player availability 2016-2017 that had a massive effect uh, post the, the 2015 uh, World Cup where a lot of players, a lot of leadership in the team uh, retired. And the margins for error at international level are very, very fine. Uh, you know, we had two, two very, very big bad losses being Ireland in 2017 and New Zealand in 2017. And that was almost a, an underlying drawing a line in the sand that SA Rugby put there, you know. Uh, and I mean, I must take some form of responsibility for those losses. You know, we, you know, we learned very bad lessons. You know, if you look at in that time, you know, a series win against France, a series win against Ireland, you know, and then 2018, a series win against England, you know. So it was still very good rugby played by the players. What Rossi did was uh, created a, a core leadership role in 2018 when he came in. A new broom sleeps queen swept away the mistakes. And, and the, I think the players were the rock bottom that they knew we all had to take accountability for it. And, and with that whole spinning it, um, the, the players immensely stood up. They came of age and stood up. 2018, I think 2017, the, the, the narrow loss to New Zealand in Cape Town, to 2018, beating them uh, in, in, in Wellington, just losing narrowly in Pretoria. You know, there were two points in either of those games. Mm. 
there was a self-belief starting to grow into that side, uh, you know, and, 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 and I must say Russi's leadership in, in to hand over more of the leadership as the team got more comfortable at that level, he handed over more leadership to the team and to the, and to the player group and the players took ownership of that. At what point did you think that this was a group that, that could be world, world champions? We always knew with the draw we had that we stood a very good chance with the draw we had. When we went through the, the championship, in 2019, that was a big indicator to us that we could win, that the, the, the game against New Zealand wasn't just away from home. Because we played well at home, but how well could we play away from home? And, and that was a big indicator to that we could go back to Wellington, repeat the performance in Wellington, win the championship. The team suddenly had confidence. They knew they could do it away from home. And then we had a very good draw, you know. Um, we knew our... New Zealand would go away from us in the draw. We would be playing behind England. That would take care of a lot of the big opposition. You know, mm-hmm. England had to face New Zealand. They had to face Australia. So we knew we had um, we had that. The big game for us was was the Welsh game. You know, we, we figured Ireland, if they had gotten through, we would have played them in the quarterfinal, and we hadn't beaten Ireland. That was the one team we hadn't beaten along the way. So that was a that was one that that worried us. And when they got positioned out of our pool that was you know we knew we had this opportunity and um if we if we can bring that back to where we started talking about the the special driving force that that that, that team had the sense of history and the the humility and, and the desire to do something for it for its for the country well you you know as a coach and a former player everyone's looking for an edge particularly a mental edge when we were hearing this sort of stuff in the week before the the final and in, and in the lead up to it when the players were voicing the, these sort of thoughts and this driving passion. From the outside, it was impossible to know if that was just a motivation tool that maybe the, the coaches have been tweaking a little bit to, to, to try and uh, to try and get the players up for the, for the big game or, or whatever. But but it, it seems that it was it it really was bigger and deeper than that. And I, I just wonder, sort of, if you can transfer that to another country, could, could an England team have a driving force like that? Or, or, or did, did you find us, did you tap into a level of motivation that, that probably isn't really available to, to other national sides? No, I think it does. You know, this was the question I was asked extensively during the Six Nations is, you know, everybody says they want to beat England. Um, and, and I answered the question by saying, having sat twice on the pavilion, uh, coaching against England at Twickenham, that is an incredibly powerful environment. Uh, being a foreigner, you know, having played my, my rugby in Scotland and having coached against England, you, when you get to Twickenham and you understand that is like the epitome of what English rugby is, it's powerful. It is incredibly powerful. And, and the English players feel that. They are incredibly powerful and have a sense of patriotic pride at Twickenham. It's, it's so apparent having come from the outside, having seen it and now being involved in it, it is, it is tangible. I mean, I can touch it, I can feel it. I can feel it from the players the minute they play at England and they play at, play at Twickenham. Each player will go through his growth period. If you look at the age of the English side, in particular their forwards, they, they're very, very young. A lot of them are very young. And the age demographic in 2023, a lot of that squad is going to be 28, 29, 30. They're going to be at the right. They will develop this through that process, through the next three, four years. This will grow inside them. The more successful they are at Twickenham, the more they will grow that whole experience 
and grow it and feel more comfortable to replicate that away from home. I don't know what it is about being away or at home uh, in rugby, but it, it, it's a tangible effect in teams. It does, right across the world, it plays a massive effect, whether you play at home or play away. South Africa had, has the, the, the added advantage of altitude, where very foreign team, teams don't understand how to play at altitude, but it affects every team. You, when we beat New Zealand, they wanted to take us back to, to Wellington because they know they are playing for their people. And, and I felt that same, that same I, I can't put a word to it, but it's, it's tangible, standing in the Twickenham change room, watching players, their focuses, their mindsets, how they talk in the week. That, that is evident uh, within the English team. It's a question of them building the confidence and taking that away from them. One of the reasons why you took up the offer to uh, switch from South Africa and come to work with Eddie Jones for a living because you mentioned the age demographic and uh, you, you had got to know them from the, from the times you coached against them. Was, 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 I mean, was it World Cup winning potential that, sort of, that drew you over here? I think I'm, I'm a rugby purist uh, at heart. I love the game of rugby. And having, I mean, it's, it, it is the home of rugby. You know, it's, if, you, if you are a young, if you're a rugby follower, I, I, I had a Scottish grandfather who, who brought me up on the Six Nations. I, I watched the Six Nations as a young boy, or the Five Nations back then as the young boy. Mm-hmm. I sat and watched it. When I was a youngster, I actually wrote, uh, Bill Beaumont had a, had a rugby academy that you could, you could join as a young boy. I actually applied to to that rugby academy to come to come to the UK to 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 be part of that academy as a youngster. So, so it always had a um, a purity to me the, the the home nation. The 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 swinging force was having coached against them in the final, and seeing how how powerful that pack of forwards was. Um, having the opportunity to work with that pack of forwards, and then meeting Eddie, he was a big big motivating factor to me. He's an incredibly dynamic man. Um, the way he thinks about the game, the way he wants to build the game, where he believes the game can go to. I, I think it can only benefit me as a human being to work with a man like that. The rugby environment in the in the UK, in particular England, the Premiership is incredibly healthy. It's a healthy competition. Uh, you know, a, a club competition that that thrives in, in in a regular format is a healthy competition. So I think it's an, it's, it was a, a I wanted to grow. I wanted to experience something bigger as a, in my rugby. You know, growing up, being twenty three or twenty four years old, leaving South Africa, going to Scotland, that was always in me as a person. I want to experience the other part of it. That amazing pack of forwards that you mentioned was the one that that your Springboks did such a, a such a job on in the in the World Cup final. Was when you look at that when you look at like that was was that World Cup final. Just a day when everything happens to go right for one team and not so much for the other, or is that unfair on 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 the Springboks? Oh, if I Owen, if I could answer that, my friend, I would have the I'd have the secret to rugby. Um, <laughs> we we were just incredibly confident. Did Carl's injury have an effect? Did the the All Black game have an effect on the the preparation of England? Um, did the fact that we had an easier pathway through have we had more you know more in our legs? Did the 6-2 bench have an effect? There's a whole lot of factors that had a, that played a part to it. What I do know is we had been training and preparing the scrum as a weapon for South African rugby. Mm-hmm. From the whole of 2018-2019, it, it was one of our big driving forces that we were working, working tirelessly to make it a, a weapon at the World Cup. And 
we had seven or eight world-class front row forwards um, that that embraced it. I think we were, you know, I think a lot of teams would have run into to a brick wall that day at scrum time. You know, if you look at the way the English pack carried that day, they were that period of play inside the South African 22. Yes, they were immense. Um, the, the game hinged on that moment right there. You know, I thought it was, other than the, the scrumming impacts, I thought it was a very, very tight game of rugby. You've worked with one team of, of, of world champions. I mean, I guess England fans want you to say, oh, I, I can see that we've, we've got another one here. But I just, just wonder what, what, uh, what the differences or, or even the similarities are between, between um, that that's, um, Springbok team you coached and, and now the England team you're helping to coach. No, I can say confidently that I see a team that can be... Look, the World Cup, the way it was played in 2019, will not be the same World Cup that will be played in 2023. The game will go through change now. Mm. And the way the teams will play in 2023 will be a lot different. We are preparing a side that I believe will be successful in 2023. Um, <laughs> you can't guarantee success in a final, but I can I can guarantee that you can almost guarantee getting to a semi-final. Um, and the, the characteristics that the NSC team possesses, you know, um, I'm very confident in what that team does hold. Brilliant. Matt, are we, on that positive note, I'll, I'll let you go back to your Cape Town garden. We, we, we love to hear that. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time and good to talk. My pleasure and have a great day, mate. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, that was Matt Proudfoot. Now it's Lawrence in conversation with John Mitchell. What does Mitchell do with England? What did he do when he was All Blacks coach? And that was nearly two decades ago. These and much, much more. Over to you, Lawrence. Well, 
Mitch, thanks for taking time to join us on The Ruck. Real pleasure to, uh, to have you on board. I guess I've got to start with the inevitable question, lockdown. What's your, what's your kind of lockdown situation? You're, you're in the UK, I take it. Yeah, no, lockdown. Uh, Brookwood, four, four miles from Woking. Uh, beautiful yeah. little um, uh, community. Got a nice canal down the back there, there, there Lowell. Um, lockdown, lockdown cost me my watt bike and my me, um, me mountain bike that's still sitting in London in the container. So I thought, okay, um, running hasn't been my friend for two years. So I thought, geez, I'd better try and start running. I'll do a bit of cross training. Uh, got a dumbbell and a, and, a, and a medicine ball and a couple of straps and stuff. And thought, well, okay, uh, one's going to have to run. So I set myself a goal to be up to 10Ks by week five. So uh, the, old bugger, the old bugger got, got, the, got the 10Ks done. So I'm into uh, my second week of 10Ks now. And I'm going to go for another four weeks until the Watt bike arrives. Well, I was going to say, Mitch, now that we're in week seven, I mean, surely uh, being a coach these days, it's about raising the targets. So, uh, so the target's just gone from, what, 10K now to uh, a little bit further, is it? Well, mate, um, yeah, I, I like the way you're talking. Um, and obviously, uh, I did have those aspirations. But the way I felt last Saturday running my 10K and just scraping in 200 metres above the, uh, the, the first target um, didn't, didn't augur for, for a great future. Well, listen, I'm going, to, I'm going to take you back, if I may, to uh, days when you were running a lot quicker and a lot, uh, a lot further, the mid-80s, when you made your Waikato senior debut. I think that's right. 86 times as captain. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. You're obviously part of a squad, a set-up with the likes of uh, Warren Gatland as well and, and your mate uh, Fozzie, Ian Foster. I mean, incredible, really, to think that you know, you, you, the Waikato would produce so many um, world-class coaches as well. But uh, just give us a few... Uh, a few of your earliest memories of those days, you know, playing for the Waikato, what that what that felt like to you? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that um, there's a photo as you as you all have some great memories as well. There's a black and white photo of the Waikato team going through the city, holding the Ramfilly Shield and the and the uh, national championship cup, and on the top of that bus was Gats. Yeah. Uh, and and Fozzie, and we've obviously all got a little bit more hair back in those days and stuff. And then to, to look at life now and see what has played out. Gats and I ended up flatting together for a, for a large period. And we both um, started off with Waikato at the same time. I got capped before him. He, he actually had to wait 14, 14 games before he, before he got one off the, one off the bench. Um, so he had to wait a long time. And um, Gats was a, also an extremely good cricketer as well. And both those guys, um, while I ended up becoming their captain, because there were so like five school teachers and really sort of like four or five really dominant personalities, I think I was the personality that was sort of could play between both of them. And because I came from an indoor basketball background where rugby wasn't, I wasn't brought up like the same New Zealander right, you know, right from the start, even though I played it, mm. I wasn't a huge focus. You know, Gats was hugely instrumental in, 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 in helping me maintain my confidence in terms of always making sure that my game came first before my before my captaincy um, and he was really really good and then Fozzie was never a, uh, the, the athletic like uh, New Zealand fly uh, fly half he was more like the strategic thinking fly half and um, and obviously he had a business degree as well so uh, and he worked in business so he 
you could see that he was a he was a smart cookie. When we joined together, I, I saw the, the the goodness in 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 both, and they brought the best out of me and allowed me to obviously uh, go through them as a captain. But when we played club rugby, well, I used to love getting after both of those two. Like, uh, <laughs> I bet you're talking about club rugby. Uh, I mean, you you had the uh, early on in your in your well towards the end of your playing career, and, and obviously early on in your coaching career, you came over to, to England and. I hope I get this in the right order, but you were at Sale Sharks first, and then, and then of, of course, my own club, London Wasps, where I got the pleasure of working with you, which was, uh, which was a real joy, real experience. And then with England, now I've got my own memories of, of the England rugby team in those days, in, in the late 90s. What, what was your recollections of, of, the, of the time that you spent, first of all, in, in English club rugby, and then, uh, and then the, the, the little spell that you had with, uh, with the England team under Clive Woodward? Yeah, I, I have great memories of that. It's amazing how they're still very vivid, uh, Lawrence. I, I often am very grateful and, and have spoken about it a lot, a lot that it was really my apprenticeship. Um, even though I played rugby in New Zealand, my coaching apprenticeship was uh, definitely in, in, in England. Um, I think I, I enjoyed the English club rugby because uh, I didn't mind getting lumps taken out of me on a on a Saturday, and I was probably um, okay defensively back then, but I'd probably lost a few wheels. So um, I enjoyed the the physical nature of of, of English club rugby at, at that particular time. And then going into coaching, I mean, I had my references as um, you know from my co- my previous coaches, my All Black coach in terms of Laurie Main, who was a hard bugger. I had a Glenn Ross, who was very much an organisational coach, and then I had uh, Kevin Green, who was like a a, a real f- facilitator empowered the experienced players so I had a mixture of everything the way that we coach now and then I look back the way that that we coached you guys Mm -hmm. I'm horrified but that's all we knew in terms of you know like um having to but but there was as I was talking to a boarding school the other day nothing's changed it's still still about the effort you put in and it's still about the 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 capacity that you create I was, going to, to, I was going to ask you that, John, actually, because, I mean, I didn't find any of those sessions. You, you've often been described as a hard taskmaster. I, you know, I, I mean, we're there to work, right? I mean, that's, we're not there to mess around. We, I mean, we're yeah. going to have some fun, but we're there to, to it's a results-driven business, as far as I can remember, and it's about getting the right results. And, and sometimes, you know, that requires a little bit of hard work. But the one question I really wanted to sort of probe you on, because you're the guy that would probably know this better than most, is... In the professional era, which obviously spans from '95 when you retired right the way through to now, what, what's the what's the biggest difference between coaching players when you first embarked on your career and coaching players now? It, it, I mean, is it because the game hasn't changed enormously, has it? No, I don't think there's a a, a lot of a lot of change. The game is probably uh, more unstructured than when you guys. It's probably yeah, it's it's, it's a lot, become a lot more chaotic, and there's. Uh, there's huge contestability right through the through the whole the whole game. So I think the structured approach probably had a greater presence, and it's the structured approach has still got a huge importance as we saw in the World Cup final. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that you've got to prepare for the unstructured, and the and the player these days uh, can uh, you know cope with uh, uh, the unstructured. And they've got to their recognition and their decision making and their behaviours within it have to have to be uh, to be spot on and I guess because the, the their awareness grows through those experiences now I'm not saying that that your generation couldn't have uh, achieved that as well but I think it's only whatever we're exposed to and they're just exposed to a to a different game they've got the same amount of time uh, to prepare as, as as professionals 
and, and it's up to us to create the right training methodology. And I think the, the real advantage these days is, is in the coaching groups. If you get a good coaching group, which includes your strength and conditioning, then it's your ability to train effectively and, and your ability to train the game that you're playing. And I think yeah. even if you look back when you guys are successful, you still probably train the game. And you, and you are trained effectively. So I still think that's the, the, the point mm. of difference. To me, it's a really enjoyable space to coach these days. I, w- I wish I had had the tools and um, the understanding back then. But again, I guess that's evolving, isn't it? Back yeah. then, um, I mean, I looked at your coaching experience and, you know, you've coached all over the world in the Southern Hemisphere, in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, obviously in the UK as well. You had the biggest job in, in one of the biggest jobs in world rugby, coaching the All Blacks, uh, but you got that job at the age of, of 37, which was, you know, thrown in at the deep end, to say the least. You, you had a really good run up until, up until the one game that probably people remember in New Zealand, which is the semi-final. What was the learning from that experience? Because, you know, co- coaching New Zealand is, is, you're really in the spotlight, aren't you? You know, before, during and after that whole experience. And, you know, I know myself, I hated losing. You hated losing. Um, I, I hope you don't blame yourself or beat yourself up about those games still now. But uh, what was your experience of, uh, of of that whole phase in your life? Yeah, it's a really important window of my life. It was actually a very changing experience as well, mate, because I was too hard on myself for four years. Um, but let's go back back a step. You know, like um, got over that now. But it's like um, at 37 to create a lot of changes in that team uh, as well, dropped some outstanding players that have been great for New Zealand. I, I don't know what made me make those changes, um, but what I what I did know is I had less than two years to try and win a World Cup, and yeah. at that particular time, the All Blacks uh, were not performing consistently or sustaining a high level of success. Australia were very much on top of them and mentally, and I still remember the first changing room in, in Lansdowne where I said to the staff after that after that game that we won out in our first test, yeah. I said we've got a big job to do mentally uh, with this with this team because the senior players did not stand up at half time and it seemed to like, seemed to be like a hierarchical uh, mm. process of communication that wasn't communicated in a in a in a very positive or constructive way. So. Um, and then the body language, language that was expressed after they lost the Bettersloe before I got involved wasn't the kind of All Black attitude. And also the All Blacks were in a culture of a whole lot of rules um, because obviously that was a transformation of, mm. of well-being, um, managing alcohol, recovery. So that, that was all new to the All Blacks at that point in time. And, and then the exposure and the pressure that came with not sustaining performance so I tried to create a more uh, empowered All Black, um, tried to create an environment where they had a say and we tried to create a style of rugby that we felt that suited our, suited our strengths. And um, the biggest mistake I made is that I focused on performance and not the holistic uh, point of view. I'm not sure how I would manage a change of board and three CEOs during that period. I'm not yeah. sure even now whether I'd be able to navigate that particular world, um, but I had to try and navigate that world at 37, which I didn't do very well, uh, and just focused on, on on performance. And then I think the way that I communicated changes to, to people like players, uh, I think if I had my time over again, I would have been a less transactional in my communication and, and more people-oriented uh, in, in, in my communication. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, you, that was when you were number one. You're obviously now in a position which is slightly different where you're, you're working as a 
I wouldn't call it number two, but you're another coach as part of a, a, a bigger team. What would you say is quite interesting because now some of those roles that you, you, you used to have as the All Blacks, maybe they're, they're someone else's responsibility now. So you're able to just to fo- focus more on the, on the pure coaching side of it rather than all the press and the, and the selections and all that kind of stuff. Is, is, that, is, that, is that just a different challenge for you? Assistant coaches never have the same pressure as a, as a head coach. And if they even tell you they do, they then no, no. It's, not, it's not the truth, mate. Um, <laughs> um, but it, it does bring its own pressures because you have your your head coach's back. Two is that you propose ideas um, and strategy that may not land and may not be uh, supported. So mm. you, you can't afford to to have a beef over over that. Ultimately, end of the day, you know, you've got to be able to propose and support. Yeah. And then and then the key thing <laughs> is you can't afford to to get siloed in your, in your own area and, and almost like uh, protect that for, for, the, for the greater, of, uh, um, greater than the whole. So you, your mindset still has to be around what you do is, is greater for the whole. From a player point of view, obviously I have a huge responsibility for the, for the back row. So my, yeah. so my um, biggest area of relationships um, uh, are the back row. But then from a defensive point of view, You've also create relationship with the with the players, yeah. um, and some you go to directly because you have a very good relationship with them. But then some of the other assistant coaches have a better relationship with some of the other players, so they're a better vehicle to go through mm-hmm. from a defensive point of view or something in the, in the game. So it's just a matter of identifying um, who the athlete probably listens to the best and has yeah. the has the greatest trust with. And if you think I think if you've got really good self awareness around those sorts of things and you work through the right people, you you're catering catering for the learner. And and at the end of the day, the player's the learner. So everything's got to be geared towards him um, and making sure that you get it across so that he can perform to the best of his ability. I'm fascinated by your your journey because you made a decision to come back to England and work with Eddie Jones. Obviously, a, a man you know very well because you know you came up against him in in the World Cup many many years ago. And I'm assuming you you may or may not have, have, have had a tilt at the at the head coach's role when it became available in 2015. What what were the real reasons for you decided to throw your hat in back in with with England, um, having having been there once before? It's interesting that you remember this hugely competitive John Mitchell. You know, wanted to win, but you know, still cared about about his players, but ultimately, end of the day, you know, like took huge responsibility for the win, lose, or draw. I guess my perspective in life is that regardless of win, lose, or draw, it won't change who I am. Mm. So for me, I was really enjoying the opportunity at the Bulls. Um, there was a number of problems in the program that needed to to be addressed. It was almost like rehashing a culture, but there was some phenomenal talent there. And I was enjoying that project um, and I was only in the early stages of it. But it just dawned upon me uh, when the opportunity did come from from England and from Eddie is that I'm teaching so many more people and I'm loving serving and uh, others and, and teaching them and coaching them and mentoring them. But I need to learn myself and I don't think I'm going to be able to get better at what I'm doing in the current role and if I remain in this role. So for me, uh, when the opportunity come, I thought, well, why not go and work with one of the best coaches in the world, um, bring my expertise, bring my experience to that program, add, add to that program. And, and within that program, because it does have a learning culture, I'm also going to uh, evolve and get better as, as a coach as well. So to me, it was almost twofold to be able to add value 
uh, to work with one of the best coaches in the, in the world and, and to, be, to be constantly challenged <clears throat> to evolve myself. Ultimately, end of the day, I just wanted to take myself out of my comfort zone. Well, there's no doubt that Eddie's one of those rugby men. That, I mean, he, he understands rugby incredibly well, but he also one of those guys that's ahead of the curve. He kind of understands the future of rugby as well. And, and that's, that, as you say, is, is really challenging to work with. But just to go back to um, the experiences you've had since you've returned, um, the Six Nations, being back involved in that tournament um, and the World Cup itself, which was an amazing journey. For me, Mitch, and I think for a lot of other fans, the two performances that stand out for me for England, and we've got to talk about them, the game in Dublin, which was probably your first return to Dublin, I think, for a, for a long time, uh, which was an outstanding, what was it, 32-20 win for England and a, a, a very proud defensive performance, which I'm sure you know, you'll touch on. And, and also the semi-final against the All Blacks, which was probably the best performance I've seen from any England team. What are your experiences of, of working back in, in that wonderful tournament, the Six Nations, and you must have been particularly proud with that, that, that standout performance in Dublin. Yeah, the Six Nations, there's something, something about that tournament. The emotion, it's still emotive and it brings, it brings that, you feel that tension. And then just the, the contestability of, yeah. of the competition compared to Tri-Nations and Beslow Cups and that, just the contestability is just... Well, they're, they're, one, they're one-off games, aren't they? There's no, there's no comeback. There's no, there's no chance. No. And... Um, and they're remembered as well. Eh? It's, it's, it's amazing. The ones you don't get, they, you remember them for life. You remember them for life and you remember why you lost them as well. It's as clear as, it's as, clear as day, you know, like so. And um, that Dublin performance, you know, w- was a good performance. And it just reflected, I guess, that we, we just became a lot more attacking in our mindset defensively. We just tweaked a couple of things. Paul Gusto had done a done a great job. You know, if you look at the heritage of of, of the English defence, you know, you've uh, you got you know you got Faz, you've got you you got Gussie. You know, they 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 have have been brilliant in in what they've brought. And there's still a lot, a lot of their stuff still with within the system. All I've done is tried to to add value uh, through becoming looking at ways where we can become more attacking in our in our mindset. And and how do we do that? What are those things that, that allow us to do that? And then we're very fortunate that, you know, Owen's got older, you know, Courtney's got older, and these guys love defence, you know, and, mm. and they, speak, they speak their game through defence and it's, it's, their, it's their identity, it's their, it's, their, it's their DNA. So if it was some other team, I probably might have to be a little bit more directive in some areas, but because there's such a love and a passion and a knowledge uh, for for what we're trying to do, then yeah. it's very easy to tweak these things because ultimately the the players own it, and um, that's not for the, to to say for one minute that we're going to stand still and and get 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 by with what we've got. So we're constantly looking at where at areas where we can create more pressure. The New Zealand game, the, the run you had in the World Cup, I was lucky enough to be there, was was magnificent. And listen, you know, we felt agonisingly short in in the final, but just talk us through that that you know. In particular, that run and and that that whole kind of sense of purpose that the, the, that all of you had in in Tokyo. Yeah, we knew that you know Argentina, you know France, quarterfinal, semi-final, final. That was that was that was the road. Yeah, that was the road. Now and, and had pretty pretty fair idea of what what was coming. I think there's it's a, there's a number of moments that stick out in, in any preparation. You know, like you go back to the early part of the preseason. When the French game was called off late, the preparation that week, we were in Miyazaki and it was stinking hot. And yeah. I, remember, I remember we trained on the Saturday 
And I think Johnny Johnny May must have got a line break uh, late in the in the in the training session, and the scramble back where I think um, there was a Curry, there was a, a Ludlam, there was a, a, a there was Owen Farrell. They forced him forced him to the sideline somehow because if he got a step back in, he would have been under the post. Yeah, they forced him to the sideline, and then I think um, Curry got a steal, and the elation and the emotion. Um, at the final whistle of, the, of that particular area of game training was just huge. And at that moment, I, w- I just stood there and I went, the boys want this. The boys want this massively, you know. So that was really significant to, to, to myself. And then Australia, you know, obviously huge run meters, you know, tacking all over the place. You know, they, they, you know, they play such a, such a fast, you know, fast game, ball in hand, which you know was a different different type of uh, contest. Then, then with New Zealand, you get the you get the physicality, uh, the, the athleticism plus the physicality. So, you know, we we were quite pensive and a quite a quite a focused and quiet quiet week and quiet quiet changing room beforehand. You knew it was on because I don't know what you're like, but I, I used to pack my bags when you get the final time. I always pack my bags. Because you just think I can't control what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, um, I pack them and unpack them and then pack them again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I'm I'm sitting in the stand, you know, like, and the boys are giving it everything against New Zealand. And you're going, we're only up ten mil. Yeah. yeah. These, these buggers always jam something. Yeah. You know, like they yeah. just because of the, the way they play. You know, they they always present themselves that opportunity. But we were constant. New Zealand team were, was so good from an attacking sense, and yet they didn't even score their first point until about 15, 20 minutes into the second half, which is incredible, really. I mean, that, that was how focused the England team were in, in shutting down and, and stopping one of the best rugby outfits in the world. Yeah, no, Eddie, Eddie needs to take the, the credit tactically, mate. You know, one of the most, well, the smartest coach I've ever come across tactically. You know, he's a he's, he's sharp, sharp operator. And that's what you love about him is, is that he can tactically come up with a piece. Sometimes you think, where did you get that from? You know, like, and... Mm. Uh, ultimately, through the evidence and through his wisdom, uh, New Zealand had become predictable. And usually they didn't adapt. But do you think, because England won that game comfortably in the end, yeah. do, do you think that was almost a uh, a bit of a warning light to the Springboks and almost created uh, a kind of a, an underdog's tag for them, which which wasn't terribly comfortable? There was some real presence in that responding to the Haka. There was some some real unity in that. Yeah, you know, cool. There was some... There was some real smartness in, in that. But as you know, in life, you've got to back that stuff up. And, and the boys mm. the boys did that. I think New Zealand take a lot out of you emotionally. I think Warren alluded to that. I don't think he meant to be, he meant that as a dig. Yeah. But it's just typical Warren when he said, you know, that was as good a final as you'll ever see in the semi-final. It's very, very, very hard mentally to back that up. And, and um, you know, maybe when you're outside the game, you don't really understand that. But I mean, I... But the thing is that none of us really saw that coming. Really, the, the following week, you know, it was just it just wasn't one of those things. Yet we all knew how dangerous South Africa were coming into the tournament itself. In fact, most of us predicted that they would win it, but uh, still didn't see it coming the way it came. Well, see, they're a very athletic team, New Zealand, and uh, we just just played rugby, didn't we? So the following week, uh, if I go back to a braai, I was cooking. Uh, with a few mates around you know, two years ago, they said to me, you know, who will be in the World Cup final? Yeah. And I said that um, the two most powerful teams in world rugby, England and the Springboks. And so the contrast in games couldn't be any more, any more clearer in the sense that they're hugely dominant 
uh, or they love their set piece. They love winning their gain line through carry and tackle. And then on the back of that momentum, they'll kick either attacking kicks or if they get no momentum, then they'll create the, you know, the contestable kicks, uh, mm. get into their kick chase. And then the thing is that if they get advantage, as they did a lot in that in that first half, and they get on advantage, then they chance their arm. So it became a it became two different styles styles of rugby. And yeah. um, and the thing is that you know we we didn't adapt well enough early. Well, as you say, that often that structured style of rugby particularly in the big occasions, is the one that prevails. Listen, Mitch, I've, only, I've got a couple more questions before you go. First of all, you've signed on the dotted line again for another couple of years, which is fantastic. What, what, what's the future for you and this England group? Well, we believe in what we do, Lol, um, big time. But the thing is, what, we, what we're also very, very clear about is that we, we want to get better. We're not satisfied. And that's driven through, through the leadership of our, of our head coach. At the end of the day, you know, we've got a very clear vision. We've got a very clear training methodology and then it's up to us as a as a coaching group and staff to create an environment that's totally effective and we've just got to continue to squeeze and look for marginal gains in in, in, in all those all those areas now those things don't 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 um, scare us because we're we're used to adapting we're used to finding it and there's no doubt that we um, through the leadership of our, of our head coach that we will we will find those marginal gains and and we will get better Listen, mate, it's been my, uh, my absolute pleasure to, to catch up with you again. I really, really do appreciate your time. I wish you all the very best whenever we get back on the rugby field and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, cheers, Lowell, and um, look forward to when we get back to the new norm, mate, that we have a ride together. <laughs> yeah, I, I look forward yeah. to that. Mate. Cheers, Lowell. Thanks very much. Yeah, take care, mate. Thanks for your time.